Chapter 8 Mikolash, the Blood Moon, the Dreamlands, and the Great Ones A hunter is a hunter, even in a dream, but alas, not too fast. The nightmare swirls and churns, unending. Mikolash, host of the nightmare, if there's anyone in Bloodborne that we can safely ascribe the quality of bad guy to, it's probably Mikolash. The Great Ones are too complex and too alien in their existence to ascribe moral values of good or bad to them. Willem very likely tried his hardest to prevent the events of Bloodborne from occurring in the first place. The beasts are no longer thinking creatures. Yarnum is portrayed as being a tragic figure, the victim of circumstances beyond her control. Annalise defied the church and tried to steer her people into a new age of prosperity. Lawrence and Germans tried to control the scourge. Ludwig tried to establish an organization that would protect the innocent. Eileen only kills hunters who have succumbed to bloodlust. The abhorrent beast can't help the fact that he's been so horribly afflicted with the scourge and his dialogue is almost heart-wrenching as you see how terrible his condition is. Maria genuinely cared for the patients of the research hall and was racked with guilt at her actions in the hamlet. Patches is mischievous but amicable. The false Iosefka is desperately trying to finish research which he believes will uplift and save humanity. Alfred simply wants to let Lugarius rest in peace. Jura just wants to protect old Yarnum. Gascoigne is slaying what he believes are monsters. Mikolash, on the other hand, is batshit crazy, and he seems to be perfectly happy with that fact. Mikolash's existence seems to be in itself a laugh at the player by the developers. We've journeyed so far, faced so much, and struggled so painfully in our search for answers. When we finally encounter someone who could explain to us what the hell is going on, he's stark raving mad. It's almost as if the developers are taunting us. You're sure you want the answers? He knows the truth. Look what good it did him. But before we get to Mikolash's status as being host of the nightmare and the implications that holds, let's go back to the beginning and take a look at Mikolash and his school of Mensis. For starters, I will use only information and evidence that can be found inside of the game. I will save my personal interpretations and beliefs for the end, so that you can make up your own mind about the evidence presented. Everything started at Birgenworth. A group of scholars discovered existence of the Great Ones and the incredible power of the Old Blood. This would lead to an inevitable separation as differences in ideology led to a group of the Birgenworth scholars leaving the academy to found the Healing Church. Mikolash was one such scholar. In our fight against him, we see Mikolash wearing the tattered uniform of a Birgenworth scholar. The description of the student's uniform reads, Uniform of the Students of Birgenworth, a bygone institute of learning. The Healing Church has its roots in Bergenworth and naturally borrows heavily from its uniform design. The focus not on knowledge or thought but on pure pretension would surely bring Master Willem to despair if only he knew. In the early days of the Healing Church, the group operated mostly in secret. German's workshop would serve as a secret police force for the church, while Mikolash would found the School of Mensis a new institution of learning for the church to continue the research at Birgenworth. According to the Upper Cathedral Key, the upper echelons of the Healing Church are formed by the school of Mensis based in the Unseen Village and the choir occupying the Upper Cathedral Ward. This key is found in Yahagel on the corpse of an imprisoned choir member. 
from their new secret location in Yahagul, Mikolash's new school of Mensis would be protected and hidden by the healing church. The Yahagul attire tells us the hunters of Yahagul answered to the village's founders, the school of Mensis. Hunters in name only, these kidnappers blend into the night wearing this attire. From their hidden conclave, Servants of the school of Mensis would skulk out into the night and kidnap innocents to drag them back to Yahargul for their experiments. The PC hunter can be one such kidnapped victim if they die to a kidnapper, an enemy that first make their appearance after the death of the blood-starved beast. The hunter also encounters and fights two Yahargul hunters lurking outside of a home in the cathedral ward, possibly searching for more victims. It would seem, however, that the school of Mensis slowly drifted apart from the healing church. While Yarnamites venerate the old blood and pay homage to the Great Ones as being godlike figures, the citizens of Yahar Gul worship the Great Ones directly. Statues of the twisted figures line the streets, and enormous chapels are devoted to the worship of spider-like Great Ones. Furthermore, the rituals of the school of Mensis seem to be either directly or indirectly responsible for the coming of the Blood Moon, but what is the blood moon? Madmen toil surreptitiously in rituals to beckon the moon, uncover their secrets. Note left by a dead hunter. The Mensis ritual must be stopped, lest we all become beasts. Note left by a dead hunter. When the red moon hangs low, the line between man and beast is blurred. Note found in Birgenworth Mansion. The red moon hangs low, and beasts rule the streets. Note left by Jura. Behold, a pale blood sky. Unknown author. The player first encounters the Blood Moon after the death of Rom, the vacuous spider. The PC hunter discovers Queen Yarnum at the bottom of the Moonside Lake, seemingly having appeared from nowhere. She weeps as she stares at the sky, and as the hunter follows her gaze, they see the overwhelming Blood Moon looming above them. After that, everything changes. This is the moment when Bloodborne goes from being a tale of beasts and blood to a tale of horrible eldritch things that work behind the scenes. Or perhaps a better way to explain it would be that it was always a story of eldritch things, only we couldn't see them. Many players walk out of Aden Chapel for the first time to the sound of a loud, hissing, vacuum-like noise coming from behind them. They turn and stare at the peculiar wisp of air that seems to flow through the air. Some of them, as I did, walk closer to learn more. It is then that the hunter is hoisted into the air by unseen forces, crushed to death and succumbing to frenzy. If you're like me, you moved on with the hunt. You chalked it up to just another bullshit Miyazaki death trap. What killed you was an amygdala, or at least what I will refer to as an amygdala. It's not clear if the amygdala that serves as the boss of the nightmare frontier is the Great One's name or is its species. However, the amygdalan arm labels it as an arm of a small amygdala great one, and the term great one is too broad, and so I refer to these creatures as the amygdalae. Once the hunter slays Rom and the blood moon rises, the amygdalae are no longer hidden. In fact, it becomes painfully clear that they've been there all along. And this brings us to the dreamlands. Many players, indeed I would say the majority of players, are naturally confused by the words nightmare and dream that repeat in Bloodborne. Most people haven't read the works of Lovecraft from which the Bloodborne series takes its influence. Even those who have read Lovecraft typically only read his later and admittedly much better written 
works such as Shadow Over Innsmouth and The Call of Cthulhu. However, towards the middle of Lovecraft's career, we have what Lovecraft scholars refer to as the dream cycle. For Lovecraft, the act of dreaming was a method in which human beings could briefly transport their consciousness to an alternate dimension. The dreamlands are not an illusion. They are a real place. The dreamlands are a location just like Yarnum, Bergenworth, Canehurst, or Yahargal. The mere fact that the player can take items from the dreamlands and bring them back to the waking world is proof that it's a place equally real. The lead elixir's description states, Its recipe for this mysterious concoction is unknown, but some postulate that it materializes only within the most desperate nightmare. There are four distinctly different locations in the dreamlands that the PC hunter travels to. The nightmare frontier, the lecture hall, the hunter's nightmare, and the hunter's dream. The hunter's dream is the first place in the dreamlands the hunter travels to, and from here it is where they will travel to different parts of the game's world. The lecture hall is the next location the hunter travels to. The lecture hall of Bergenwirth has been somehow warped and transported into the dreamlands. The lecture hall is connected to the nightmare, which consists of both the nightmare of Mensis and the nightmare frontier. And judging from the fact that a church giant is found in the upper levels, it's possible that the school of Mensis moved into the nightmare lecture hall at some point in time. Notice that when the hunter opens certain doors in the lecture hall and transports to the nightmare, the same warping effects and particles occur as when the hunter uses a lamp. The dreamlands are a location that exists parallel to our own world. They have a landscape just like we do, only they play by slightly different rules. Teleportation is just another method of transportation in the dreamlands. The dreamlands exist directly parallel to our own waking world. While the waking world is the domain of humanity, the dreamlands are the lands of the Great Ones. These two worlds exist like a reflection of one another. The nightmare frontier appears to be a reflection of the ravaged Pithumerian land of Lauren, as evidenced by the fact that silver beasts wander the frontier and that amygdala drops the ailing Lauren chalice. The hunter's nightmare appears to be a reflection of the city of Yarnum itself. The hunter's dream is obviously German's abandoned workshop. They are places so very similar to their locations in the waking world, only slightly different. Consider staring into the mirror, watching your reflection. You stare at it for an hour, and, for the very briefest of moments, you see a figure standing behind you in your reflection. Whipping your head behind you, startled, you see that nothing is there. Looking back at your reflection, the figure is gone. What you've just seen is a tiny little rip in the veil that separates the two worlds, the waking world and the dreamlands. The figure is, of course, still standing behind you. It exists on a plane of reality parallel to your own, above yours. Maybe the figure was curious about you, wanted to learn more, and in showing interest, made itself visible for just the slightest of moments. Behold, a pale blood sky. This message can be found prior to Rom's death, rather confusingly. If we look up at the sky, nothing is out of the ordinary. The message is still there, however, after Rom's death. Looking at the sky reveals the blood moon in all its splendor. Of course the message was there before, because the blood moon was always there, we just couldn't see it. This is what insight allows us to do. With 40 insight, the hunter will be able to see the amygdalae in the cathedral ward even before the death of Rom.
With 50 Insight, the theme music of The Hunter's Dream will change to the theme that plays in The Hunter's Dream after Rom's death, even before Rom's death. With 60 Insight, the hunter will be able to hear the crying baby when standing next to Ariana, even before the death of Rom. There is a theme here. Insight allows us to glimpse into the realm parallel to our own and see what lies beyond humanity's perception. After the death of Rom, the veil that separates the worlds collapses completely. Insight is no longer necessary. The blood moon rises. The amygdalae are visible. The crying baby is heard constantly. The citizens of Yarnam are driven insane once they are forcibly made to understand the depths of their reality. Simply looking upon the Great Ones is enough to drive someone insane, let alone the twisted knowledge that they lurked above you all your life, always watching you. But where does it fit together? How does Mikolash beckon the Blood Moon? Why is he in the nightmare? Why is he the host? What follows is purely my own interpretation and belief based on the evidence I have gathered. Do not consider any of this as solid fact. Instead, use it as my interpretation, so that you can gather your own beliefs. The School of Mensis was founded to continue the study of the Great Ones began at Bergenworth. Mikolas reported to Lawrence and the Healing Church, and in return, they kept the existence of the school a secret. After the purge of old Yarnum, Secrecy was no longer necessary, and the choir was formed to study the old blood of the Great Ones and Ebrietas. Early on, Mikolash and the choir cooperated, as evidenced by the auger of Ebrietas that Mikolash wields. However, Mikolash's experiments and the rituals of the school of Mensis slowly grew more twisted. Mikolash began to kidnap hunters, likely to Ludwig's displeasure. Even the corpse of a choir member is found chained and imprisoned inside of Yahargul, suggesting that Mikolash and the Mensis students were growing emboldened by their closing nearer to the Eldritch truth. In response to this, the choir would send a man named Edgar to infiltrate the school of Mensis and discover what was going on, implying that the school had begun hiding their research from the choir. We know very little about Edgar. He is found in the Nightmare of Mensis, and wears a student uniform, wielding a holy blade and rosmarinus. The official guide simply names him as Edgar, Choir Intelligence. Edgar travelled into the school of Mensis to find that the students now worshipped the Great Ones as literal gods, the Amygdalae in particular. The motivations of the Amygdalae are unknown. It's clear that the godlike beings could likely send Yarnum toppling to the ground if they wished. The weapons of mortals pale in comparison to the Great Ones. It's odd, really, how they seem so idle and passive as they watch the humans walk by, sometimes reaching down in curiosity to grasp at one. Amygdalae only appear in places of worship. One is found wrapped around the Eden Chapel, another in the abandoned church that served as a gateway to Yahargul. The amygdala the player fights is located in what appears to be a large cathedral where the ancient Pythumerians likely worshipped the Great One. Consider the Moon Rune's description, a transcription of Moon, as spoken by the Great Ones inhabiting the Nightmare. The Great Ones that inhabit the Nightmare are sympathetic in spirit, and often answer when called upon. Perhaps that explains why the Amygdalae, which live in the Nightmare, congregate around places of worship. Maybe they listen to the hopes and prayers of human beings. In Yahargul, however, the Amygdalae are everywhere.
As Mikolaj and the school of Mensis grew closer to the eldritch truth, they attracted more and more of the great ones, like a flame attracting moths. Their final ritual, however, would be their undoing. Somehow Mikolaj came into possession of one of the umbilical cords of the great ones, Murgo's umbilical cord to be specific. Here was all the evidence they needed, the cord of a true great one, Murgo, child of Yarnum and Uidon. With the results of their research and the cord of the eye at their disposal, Mikolash and the Mensis students would attempt to ascend to the status of godhood, just as Rom and Willem had done with the orphan's cord. Mikolash would line his brain with eyes. The cord's description, every great one loses its child and then yearns for a surrogate. This cord granted Mensis audience with Murgo but resulted in the stillbirth of their brains. Murgo was dead. Indeed, Murgo had died in stillbirth millennia ago in ancient Pthumaru. It's not exactly clear what it would mean for a great one to be dead, if they can even die in the first place. When the school of Mensis communed with the dead great one, it was the end of Yahargul. The veil between worlds was ripped apart. Bell ringers brought the dead to life. The citizens fleeing the carnage were frozen in stone, permanently affixed to the walls they so desperately tried to climb to freedom. The many caskets that lined the streets burst open, body parts coagulating together into masses of meat and bone that clung together and attacked the kidnappers, murdering them. Mensis was dragged into the nightmare, ripped open. Mikolash and all of his students were dead, but their consciousnesses were pulled down into the nightmare. Very few would survive this transition, the only two we know of being Mikolash and Edgar. Mikolash was brought to the dreamlands, specifically the nightmare. Edgar likely survived due to the fact that he was not wearing a mensis cage and likely did not participate in the ritual, while Mikolash is a bit of a special case. Mikolash's corpse, still located in Yahargul, provided a gateway. Just as the many lamps around Yarnum provide gates to the hunter's dream, Mikolash's corpse, the host of the nightmare, would provide a gateway to the nightmare. The nightmare, as we have discussed, appears to be a reflection of the Pthumerian city Loran. If that is the case, perhaps Loran was the place of Mergo's attempted birth. At the top of Mergo's loft, the castle upon which the hunter ascends, we find Queen Yharnam weeping. By following her gaze, we ascend to the top of the castle, and there we fight Mergo's wet nurse. Historically, a wet nurse was typically a woman who would breastfeed an infant child if the mother, for whatever reason, was unable to. While fighting her, the lullaby of Mergo, a haunting melody, plays throughout the area. Perhaps the wet nurse was a great one summoned by Yarnum to care for her future child, or perhaps the wet nurse was created as some kind of manifestation of Mergo's consciousness. Either way, the wet nurse is a fully formed great one. She bleeds red just as the amygdalae, the orphan and the moon presence do, instead of the clear fluid that the kin bleed. She is the dominant force ruling over the nightmare from atop Murgo's loft, and something peculiar occurs upon slaying her. In the English version of Bloodborne, the blue text Prey Slaughtered accompanies a victorious boss fight. In the Japanese version, it's the blue text You Hunted. But in both versions, killing Murgo's wet nurse causes the red text Nightmare Slain to appear on the screen. I was rather confused when I had first seen this. Consider Bloodborne's tagline, 
hunt your nightmares. Let's pause for a moment and look at the four fully-fledged great ones that the hunter encounters, the wet nurse, amygdala, the orphan, and the moon presence. Of the four, amygdala is the only one who does not grant the nightmare slain message. The wet nurse, the orphan, and the moon presence are the only three enemies in the game who make that message appear on screen. This puzzled me for a very, very long time until I came to a rather simple conclusion. Amygdala isn't dead. Even after killing the one in the Nightmare Frontier, the other amygdalae still remain. The hunter even kills another amygdala in the Thumerian Labyrinth. Perhaps the amygdalae aren't individual members of a single species after all, but a single great one. After all, Patches speaks to the amygdala that grabs you in the Cathedral Ward as if it is amygdala itself. I only had this revelation after refighting Murgo's wet nurse in NG+, and realizing that she appears to create a perfect clone of herself, using it to fight me. The Great Ones exist on a level far beyond our comprehension. Who is to say they can't be in multiple places at once? In the depths of Great Is, the hunter even fights Ebrietas for a second time, who appears to have been there all along. Whatever the mystery behind the nightmare slain message, slaying the wet nurse ends Murgo's consciousness and puts the Mensis rituals to an end. However, the ritual had not been an entire failure. The ascension had worked, more or less. A new great one was born from the stillbirthed minds of the Mensis students, the brain of Mensis. The living string tells us, the immense brain that Mensis retrieved from the nightmare was indeed lined with eyes on the inside, but they were of an evil sort, and the brain itself was terrible rotten. But even still, it was a legitimate great one and left a relic, a living relic at that, which is a precious thing indeed. The brain of Mensis is a helpless great one, whose only real strength is the madness it causes by looking upon it. The brain of Mensis is suspended in Murgo's loft, acting as a living weapon that attacks oncomers. If the hunter finds their way down to a lever accessible by fighting past the winter lanterns, they can release the chains on the brain of Mensis and send it hurtling into the abyss. Working back down to the base of Murgo's loft, they will find a new elevator which brings them down to the fallen, helpless Great One. It was kind of sad, really. When I first encountered the brain of Mensis, twitching there, a massive brain and eyes that watched me walking back and forth, I wasn't really sure what to do with it. Should I kill it? It certainly wasn't aggressive, it was simply lying there and clearly had no way of fighting back. I decided to do what had become a bit of a habit for me whenever I encountered something having to do with the Great Ones. I put on the Mensis cage and performed the make-contact gesture. The Mensis cage is described as, This hexagonal iron cage suggests their strange ways. The cage is a device that restrains the will of the self, allowing one to see the profane world for what it is. It also serves as an antenna that facilitates contact with the Great Ones of the Dream but to an observer, the iron cage appears to be precisely what delivered them to their harrowing nightmare. I had learned early that the doll would respond to gestures, leading me to believe there were others that would as well. Just like everyone else, I was hoping to find some kind of secret somewhere. So far, I had been thoroughly unsuccessful. No matter where I wore the Mensis cage or to whom I performed make contact, nothing had happened. So I sat there, like an idiot I told myself, as my hunter stood in front of the brain of Mensis with his arms outstretched. 
I knew from experience that eventually the hunter would change positions, and I had taken to waiting for that moment before moving on with whatever I was doing. To my complete and utter surprise, an item appeared in my inventory. It was a moon rune, the most powerful one I had encountered. The great ones that inhabit the nightmare are sympathetic in spirit and often answer when called upon. It was a moment that legitimately made me feel bad about this thing in front of me. I decided to kill it. Maybe the fact that it gave me a moon rune, a rune that grants more blood echoes upon killing enemies, was some kind of cry for an end to its misery. I was rewarded with the living string, an item I had been looking for idly for quite some time as it was needed to access Pathumaru Ihil. Later I would read online that the Mensis cage was unnecessary and one simply had to perform make contact. To my surprise, I would read that nobody had discovered any use for the Mensis cage whatsoever. Nothing? Really? Not a single secret unlocked with such an item that seems so obviously placed to unlock a secret? Maybe the cage doesn't do anything at all. Maybe in their madness, the delusions of the Mensis students convinced them it worked, even though it wasn't necessary. Their madness, after all, would deliver them to their harrowing nightmare. Grant us eyes! Grant us eyes! Plant eyes on our brains to cleanse our beastly idiocy! Mikolash, host of the nightmare. Chapter 9. Lawrence German and the Hunter's Mark. Seek the old blood. Let us pray. Let us wish to partake in communion. Let us partake in communion and feast upon the old blood. Our thirst for blood satiates us, soothes our fears. Seek the old blood, but beware the frailty of men. Their wills are weak, minds young. The foul beasts will dangle nectar and lure the meek into the depths. Remain wary of the frailty of men. Their wills are weak, minds young. Were it not for fear, death would go unlamented. Vicar Amelia Lawrence and German. Together they would change the world. Who were they originally and how did they fall from grace? What happened to Lawrence and how was German bound to the hunter's dream? When we see now what their organization has become, we can only wonder what these two individuals dreamed of. Did they want a better world? Did they want personal power? Perhaps they were simply madmen, chasing after scientific curiosity and slaughtering the innocent in their path. In this penultimate chapter, we will examine the fates of these two individuals and the consequences of their actions. For starters, I will use only information and evidence that can be found inside of the game. I will save my personal interpretations and beliefs for the end, so that you can make up your own mind about the evidence presented. The PC Hunter awakens into a world of horror, just as the player does. They have no answers. They have no real questions to even ask. The world is confusing, frightening, and punishing. Indeed, if the Hunter had been alone, they likely never would have gotten much of anywhere. But the Hunter isn't alone. Aha! You must be the new Hunter. Welcome to the Hunter's Dream. This will be your home for now. I am German, friend to you, Hunters. You're sure to be in a fine haze about now, but don't think too hard about all of this. Just go out and kill a few beasts. It's for your own good. You know, 
It's just what hunters do. You'll get used to it. German, the first hunter. German provides the hunter with a home and a workshop from within the hunter's dream. German will provide the hunter with a bit of comfort and a small amount of guidance. But who is German? Where does he come from and why is he here? According to the plain doll, He was a hunter long, long ago, but now serves only to advise them. He is obscure, unseen in the dreaming world. Still he stays here in this dream. German was the first hunter, and from him all modern hunting techniques were developed. A central theme of German is mercy, what he grants to those he kills in the hunter's dream, as implied by his burial blade. Trick weapon wielded by German, the first hunter. A masterpiece that defined the entire array of weapons crafted at the workshop. Its blade is forged with sidewright, said to have fallen from the heavens. German surely saw the hunt as a dirge of farewell, wishing only that his prey might rest in peace, never again to awaken to another harrowing nightmare. He also created the plain doll, basing its appearance upon his dead student, Maria. From within the hunter's dream, German and the doll guide the pale-blood hunters in their work. German was also, as we know, an acquaintance of Lawrence. Oh, Lawrence, what's taking you so long? I've grown too old for this, of little use now, I'm afraid. Our first encounter with Lawrence comes from discovering his skull in the Grand Cathedral after defeating Vicar Amelia. Here we witness a memory in which Lawrence announced to Master Willem that he was leaving the college. We learn from Lawrence's skull found in the nightmare that it is the Skull of Lawrence, first vicar of the healing church. In reality, he became the first cleric beast, and his human skull only exists within the nightmare. The skull is a symbol of Lawrence's past, and what he failed to protect. He is destined to seek his skull, but even if he found it, it could never restore his memories. The human skull appears to be a purely symbolic object, created in the nightmare as Lawrence's skull in the waking world is found in the Grand Cathedral. In Miyazaki's interview with Future Press, he remarks that Lawrence's skull served as the start of the healing church itself, but it's taken the form of a twisted beast. Lawrence was therefore the founder of the healing church, having left Bergenworth after a disagreement in philosophy with Master Willem. Lawrence and German represent two halves of a mystery. What happened to them? How did things become the way they are when we enter the game? What follows is purely my own interpretation and belief based on the evidence I have gathered. Do not consider any of this as solid fact. Instead, use it as my interpretation so that you can gather your own beliefs. Lawrence was the first vicar. German was the first hunter. Their story, like much in Bloodborne, begins at Bergenwirth. We have already established that German was an associate of both Lawrence and Master Willem. German may have been a student at Bergenwirth, or judging by his combat proficiency and craftsmanship, may have been the Academy's handyman, groundskeeper, or a bodyguard. But upon the discovery of the old blood, Lawrence would lead a section of the Bergenwirth scholars in forming the Healing Church, separating from Bergenwirth. German, Lawrence's closest friend, would join him. Lawrence and German believed that humanity could achieve its next evolution through the use of the old blood, as written in the Metamorphosis rune. The discovery of blood made their dream of evolution a reality. Metamorphosis and the excesses and deviation that followed 
was only the beginning. It was, however, at this time that Lawrence and German came to a horrible discovery. While the old blood could indeed cure any disease, those who had been ministered were susceptible to falling under a new, terrible illness known only as the scourge of the beast. Those who had succumbed to the tainted blood suffered from a form of lycanthropy. Their hair elongated, their teeth sharpened, their size and strength increased, and they became violent and irrational. The men and women who had succumbed to the scourge became beasts. But Lawrence could not stop his research. Sacrifices would need to be made. All who followed Willem's footsteps knew that evolution required courage. A note found in the Nightmare Lecture Hall reads, Master Willem was right. Evolution without courage will be the ruin of our race, and so Lawrence's work would continue. While Lawrence formed the church, German formed the workshop. A secret institution, the workshop would train a group of individuals to hunt and slaughter beasts. The hunter attire tells us it is a fine piece of hunter attire that provides stable defense to anyone facing Yarnum's beastly threat, allows one to stalk beasts unannounced by cover of night. The workshop acted as a secret cleanup crew for Lawrence's budding church. They would hunt down those who had turned and execute them before panic could spread throughout Yarnum. It's possible that Lawrence and German, knowledgeable of the great ones that they were, also discovered the terrible nature of the blood moon and the source of the scourge as being the pale-blooded moon presence. They tried to find a way to defeat the moon presence, an antibody that would be too strong for it, some way to control the scourge of the beast. They were unsuccessful. Lawrence and German grew older. The workshop was sealed away, and German became prisoner of the moon presence. In his attempt to free his closest friend, Lawrence pushed his research to the limits. The scourge had to be contained, no matter the cost. Ashen blood was introduced to old Yarnum, and the research intensified. The beasts were studied by Lawrence and his church, even while corpses piled in the streets and the city was covered in blood. Lawrence's countless experiments resulted in a breakthrough, the culmination of all of his research to put an end to the scourge of the beast and control it for good, the beast's embrace. After the repeated experiments in controlling the scourge of beasts, the gentle embrace rune was discovered. When its implementation failed, the embrace became a forbidden rune, but its knowledge became a foundation of the healing church. In the grand cathedral of the healing church, the first vicar committed the embrace to memory. The oath rune burned into his mind. With this he would take control over the scourge, put an end to the hunts, master the old blood, guide humanity to the next stage of human evolution, and free his best friend from the control of the Great Ones. This is what everything had been for, all the dead victims, all the unspeakable crimes, leaving Bergenworth, exploring the labyrinth, founding the healing church. Everything in his life had been for this. Everything led to this one moment. For this, it would be all worth it, but it was not to be. The skull is a symbol of Lawrence's past and what he failed to protect. On that day, the healing church changed forever. Lawrence became the first cleric beast, a creature the likes of which the healing church had never encountered. This was not simply a person who had grown fangs and hair. This was a true monster. It's possible that it was the church assassin Bredor who found Lawrence first. Bredor's testimony, the scalp of a cleric beast, tells us 
the scalp of a horrid cleric beast, indicating that Hunter Bradore, a healing church assassin, had killed a compatriot. Afterward, he wore his ally's own scalp and hid himself away, deep below in a cell. The church provided him with a single soundless bell of death to ensure their secrets would be kept. Bredor slew Lawrence, and in doing so was driven mad. He skinned the corpse, splattered his clothes with the blood of the fallen vicar, severed the head from the body and scalped it. When he was found, he was drenched with blood and gore, and his bloodletter was steeped in frenzy. Nothing changes, such is the nature of man. Bredor Bredor and his testimony to the failure of the healing church were locked away. Any and all research into controlling the scourge of the beast was immediately stopped and deemed forbidden. The claw mark and beast runes, along with the beast blood pellets, were all black marked by the healing church. With Lawrence's death, the church had formed one of the pillars of its philosophy, beware the frailty of men. The scourge cannot be controlled, it must be destroyed. As for Lawrence, his consciousness was pulled into the nightmare. Perhaps he was cursed to burn for all eternity, as punishment for the flames that covered old Yaharnam, a brilliant mind lost to madness. And so now we have the first half of our picture. But what of German? While German hadn't been affected as deeply by the events of the Hamlet massacre as Maria had been, it had still disturbed him. He too was subject to the curse of the Cosparasites, and had terrible dreams because of it. Upon defeating the orphan, the doll notes that German is sleeping strangely soundly, for he normally has difficulty sleeping. Even so, German aided Lawrence in the founding of the Healing Church and established the workshop, training the first hunters in the art of slaying beasts. But while German hadn't been as distraught by the Hamlet massacre, the death of Maria destroyed him. According to Maria's hunter garb, German had a curious mania in regards to her that she was unaware of. Maria greatly admired German, but it's unclear if the master and student shared a romantic relationship or whether German's affection for her was purely one-sided. Whatever the case, her death ruined him. After defeating Maria in the astral clock tower, we find her coffin placed directly behind her chair. Resting atop the coffin lid are cold blood flowers, the same as the ones found in German's garden in the hunter's dream. Spiralling into depression after the death of his greatest pupil, German sealed his workshop away and withdrew from the world into his isolation. In his growing madness, German made a doll. The master craftsman that he was, the doll was made with exquisite perfection. The small hair ornament tells us, although it has been lost for quite some time, one can still see signs of the care with which this tasteful ornament was once kept. This indicates that German held on to his only memento of Maria, treasuring it designing his doll off of her. Terribly lonely and terribly miserable, he wanted nothing more than to have Maria back. It was then that something took notice of poor German's mania, for as the Moonrune reminds us, the Great Ones are sympathetic in spirit. To have his beloved Maria back, he would give anything. So it was that German was bound to the dream and the hunter's mark branded in his mind. Dangling, upside-down rune etched in one's mind, symbol of a hunter. Hunter's mark. What is the hunter's mark? In terms of gameplay significance, it functions as the nexial binding from demon souls or the dark sign from dark souls. But what is it really? Its description calls it a rune, but we do not commit it to memory, 
like we do the carol runes. Runes are, as we know, utterings of the Great Ones etched into symbols. Runesmith Carol could commune with the Great Ones and listen to their mutterings, but she could find no words to describe them. Instead, Carol could only find symbols that represented these utterings, comprehensible to human minds. If we think of these symbols as representing words of a language, we can therefore conclude that the hunter's mark is, quite literally, the Great One word for hunter as the same symbol is found on Carol's own hunter rune, the uttering of a great one etched into one's mind, the symbol of a hunter. Hunter, this word, branded into one's mind, is what makes someone a hunter, and not just any hunter, but a special hunter, a pale-blood hunter, one bound to the dreamlands. This rune is what makes someone immortal, cursed to hunt and hunt and hunt until they are freed. We as players have this mark branded into our minds, no matter how many times we die, we wake up again. Even if we fall off a cliff, we're cut in half, we're burned to death, we're killed by frenzy, we're crushed by a monster. We die and 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 even still we wake up once more. Even if we kill ourselves with the chikaj or the wheel or the whistle or the bloodletter, we wake up once more. There's only one way out for someone branded with the hunter's mark, to die by the hand of another branded hunter. As German settled into his new place in the hunter's dream, he found himself shackled and chained. There was no escape for German, the first hunter. Trapped in a living hell, unable to die, unable to be granted mercy, German guided other pale-blood hunters. When their hunts were over, German would end their life, freeing them from the wretched, tortuous existence of eternal life. He granted them mercy. But where is the hunter's mark coming from? As the player receives their first blood transfusion, they are attacked by a beast. But the beast turns to flames and the messengers arrive, crawling over the player. At that point, something took notice of the player. Something peered over them and spoke a single word. Hunter. With that uttering, they were reborn. Their life before the transfusion was irrelevant. They were now a weapon, 